This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. My gratitude to Sylvia for the invitation and to, the, to Villanova and to uh, the political science department, especially Mr. Lowell for the invitation. I feel at home in Villanova and the students have been nice to me. People stop me. I see my picture everywhere. People <laughs> stop me like, you are the guy in the picture or whatever. <laughs> and I've been welcomed in classes. I taught some classes. I really feel at home, I mean, really in Villanova and I'm really grateful to that. Now, um, uh, the topic is about uh, the challenges of democratic transition in Tunisia. And I think this topic is interesting to anybody um, curious about uh, the Arab world in general. Anybody curious about the Islamic world or the Muslim world? And especially anybody who is seriously curious about uh, democracy itself. We have received in Tunisia several uh, scholars and academics who are uh, special, political scientists who are specialized in the study of democracy. And it seems it is. It should be a very interesting destination now because if anybody is really interested by the transition from uh, dictatorship to democracy, that's the, r the right place to be. I mean, we are, when I use the, when I talk about the Tunisian revolution, I use the present perfect myself. I'm surprised when people talk about, use the past tense, saying the revolution occurred in 2000. The revolution is still going on. So when we talk about, if we're really serious about a revolution, that is a radical fundamental transformation, it is still going on and it will go on for some time. So uh, it is a very challenging and exciting place um, to be. Uh, since we can't really go all to Tunisia today, we brought to Tun Tunisia to this classroom and I'm talking uh, to you about it as um, not only as a commentator but also as Sylvia said as an actor if you want or as a witness of that, um, of that revolution. So my presentation is divided into the following uh, ideas. Uh, where is that? So the, uh, the uh, Tuni Tunisian exceptionalism, um, that's what I'm starting with. Uh, to me, uh, it's not an accident that the Arab Spring started in Tunisia. It's not by no means an accident. There are uh, objective reasons for that, and I'm trying to briefly introduce that. Why um, did all these events start in Tunisia? Why not in, in Yemen? Why not in Saudi Arabia, for that matter? So why Tunisia? That's what I'm uh, starting with. Then. I'm uh, talking about the, uh, the context of the Tunisian Revolution, that is um, when, why, how, etc. I'm talking about its objectives uh, and ideals. I'm, talking, I'm describing the originality of the Tunisian Revolution. And then, of course, I'm talking about uh, its means, its process. Uh, then uh, this is part number two. Then part number three will deal with the first transition period. Uh, from uh, uh, January uh, 14, 2010, that's when the dictator left the country, uh, to the first elections in um, October 2011. So uh, I'm referring to this period as a period of chaos and hope. So it was really very emotionally uh, important uh, period. Uh, then I'm moving to the second transition period, which started immediately after the first democratic elections and which was expected to last for a year, but we are still going on with that period. You see here October 2011 and uh, it is still going on. So this uh, phase number two, the second transition period with the Islamists in power is still going on. The title I'm giving it is the following, Islamists in power, hardships and disillusionments versus challenges and indecisions of revolutionary times. And then, of course, we finish with hopes for the future, Tunisia's democratic assets and, um, and chances. 
Now, Tunisian exceptionalism. Of course, uh, anybody who is a little bit familiar with the Arab world uh, would... Um, uh, of course, people were surprised where um, that um, revolution started in, in, in Tunisia or in the Arab world. But um, anybody familiar with that region uh, would agree with this perception or, or would agree with this idea of Tunisian exceptionalism. Uh, actually, Tunisia and Tunisians have always been known for their or our moderation, uh, rationality, midway approaches, uh, a t religious tolerance, cultural tolerance, uh, rejection of extremists, uh, uh, ideologies or whatever. So, and this is really um, uh, pretty exceptional uh, in that part uh, of the world. So this is not uh, uh, accidental again. Why do we have, why are Tuni is Tunisia exceptional today? Why are Tunisians so tolerant? Why are Tunisians so modern? Why are Tunisians so progressive? I see several reasons for that. One of them is history. Uh, Tunisia has got a 3,000 years long history. Uh, this history was uh, characterized by, this, by several successive civilizations which sometimes coexisted. So Tunisia uh, has been, if you want, a meet and place of, of diverse cultures. Going on, uh, this process has been going on for 3,000 three, three years. And you can see all the cultures we've had in 3,000 years. So um, it's not a lesson of history, but um, these are the successive civilizations we had. You know, we had Babers. Uh, as indigenous civilization, and we still have some Babers uh, left in Tunisia. The first foreign visitors were Punics and Phoenicians uh, from the 9th century BC until the uh, 2nd century BC. This is the great civilization of Carthage, of Alice. These are the people who brought us, uh, this is the great Hannibal civilization. These are the people who brought us the olive tree. So I talk about that in the next, in the next event. Then the Roman uh, civilization, from the 1st uh, century BC until the 5th AD. Uh, the Romans turned Carthage into the second richest in the whole Roman Empire, and it was really an impressive uh, uh, civilization. Uh, the Vandals, that's from the 5th until the 6th. Uh, the Byzantines, the Christian Tunisia, that's from the 6th century until the 7th century. Uh, the building, I, I have my office in a building referred to as Augustine office, I think, yeah, or building. Well, I'm, I'm surprised that many people uh, working in that uh, building don't really know that Augustine is one of the icons of Tunisia's history. And so we have uh, at least something in common, Villanova and, and Tunisia. And if you go to Carthage today, you still, some of you went already there, you still see the St. Augustine church in there. So he's, if you look into the history of Tunisia's icons, St. Augustine symbolizes the Christian uh, part of Tunisia. That's the Byzantine era. Then, of course, we had the Arabs uh, come in in the 7th century and uh, until today, so they, they came in. They are the only people who came and never left, so uh, <laughs> I don't know whether this is good or bad. Uh, I'm a scholar, I have to be objective, but the Arabs came in in the 7th century in 670 and they are still there. Um, then, of course, we had the Spanish ruling us for a very short time. Uh, Tunisia was also part of the great Ottoman Empire during 300 years, uh, from, 17, from 1774, uh, I, didn't, I, don't, I didn't precise it there, but from 1774 until 1957. Uh, Tunisia was under French domination between 1881 and 1956. Tunisia it obtained its independence in 1956 and the modern Tunisian Republic. Um, uh, um, was founded on July 25th, 1957. What does this mean? This means that this country's 3,000 years history has, this is like a training in cultural uh, um, uh, tolerance. That is, we've had 
several civilizations coming in and, as I said, coexisting for some time. The language I speak today is Tunisian. Some people might ask me what Tunisian is. Uh, probably this lady wouldn't because she's fl fluent in Tunisian. But uh, uh, some people come like uh, this gentleman who speaks uh, standard Arabic. He came into Tunisia trying to practice his Arabic, but it was uh, unsuccessful since we speak Tunisian in Tunisia. And Tunisian is very symbolic. It symbolizes the complexity of our, um, um, I was talking about, of these diverse civilizations. Tunisians is made of Arabic, French, Berber, Italian, Spanish, and Turkish. Did I forget anything? <laughs> okay. The word, uh, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to give you an example now. I mean, we could have um, uh, this um, uh, some other time. But the, the language we speak symbolizes this diversity we have and this tolerance we have. So that's the, f the first reason I see uh, uh, justifying this uh, uh, um, exceptionalism. The second reason, reason which is linked to the first one, which is the geography of Tunisia. Some people don't... Um, don't really know where Tunisia is. I had somebody last week, uh, a student, a political science student, I, I happened to have lunch with. He said, I'm sorry, I listened to your course, I like that, but can you tell me where you come from exactly? Because uh, it was very brief as a name. I said, Tunisia, where is that exactly? I told him, listen, it's in North Africa. He said, I'm sorry, but you don't look very African. I mean, I, I, I got his point. I told him, really, I mean, and, and that's not the first time it happened to me. I mean, I, I had this, I'm, and I'm not the only one. Many Tunisians have had this experience. So that's why I added this map here, okay? So this is where Tunisia is. This is North Africa. And as you see, Tunisia is at the center of the Mediterranean. Uh, that's the reason why Tunisia has been attractive to all, to all these civilizations, okay? We've, we have no oil in Tunisia. We ha that's why you guys in America never hear about us, okay? <laughs> we have no oil in Tunisia. We have not, no natural resources. We have, um, but in the pre-nuclear age, Tunisia used to be strategically very important. As you see, it's in the center of the Mediterranean, exactly in the middle between Egypt and Morocco, etc. And this, um, I call it Carrefour of civilizations, that is a meeting place of civilizations, has really uh, uh, participated in this uh, exceptionalism. The other reason, uh, of course, and the main reasons have got to do with the contemporary uh, Tunisia. Uh, and Tunisia, as I said, was founded in 1957, the modern Tunisian Republic. We had the chance, we were blessed to have a very progressive uh, uh, president at the very beginning, who was influenced, this is Mr. Habib Bourguiba, who was influenced by the Enlightenment. He was a student in Paris in the 1920s, and he came back home with the impress by the, um, by the Enlightenment uh, spirit, if you want, or mentality or political thought uh, uh, um, uh, in Europe at, at the time. So what, what are the distinctive uh, uh, characteristics of contemporary Tunisia? One is a high level of education. This is very important compared to many other countries uh, in the region, even compared to our closest uh, neighbors. Uh, in 1957, the first uh, modern uh, Tunisian government took uh, an important decision which would really have an impact um, today or later on. In 1957, our first government decided to offer free compulsory every, uh, education to everybody. This is very important because Tunisia is a poor country, remember. And Tunisia was, or has since then, been, been devoting one-third of its budget to education. I'm not sure, and correct me if I'm wrong, if that there's any other country in the world devoting so much to education. So I haven't had anybody correct me so far because I speak in several places. So one-third of, uh, of Tunisia's um, budget devoted to education, that's important. So, uh, and we have this, uh, as I said, uh, compulsory but free education. My students back home are not, uh, are not rich. 
so that's why this, this explains the huge number of students we have. And um, you might tell me what's the link? Why? I mean, in a speech about the Tunisian Revolution, I mean, the Tunisian Revolution was conducted by highly educated people by highly educated, uh, uh, um, I mean, young people. So this uh, um, um, high level of education has really, um, uh, I mean, prepared, or if you want, paved the ground, or has created a sophisticated level of political discourse and a kind of an aspiration to democracy. The second uh, uh, really exceptional characteristic, and that's part of the word, has got to do with uh, our emancipated women. Again, taking you back to Habib Bourguiba, in 1957. Uh, Habib Bourguiba in 56 was prime minister. He became president when Tunisia became a republic in 57. In 1956 he imposed um, the code of the personal status. The code of the personal status was a revolutionary code in that part of the world. Uh, it, um, I'm, I'm, I'm briefly mentioning that. It outlawed polygamy. Uh, there are two Muslim countries in the world where polygamy is outlawed today. Do you know the other country? I guess most of you would know. Yeah? It's, the other country is Turkey. These are the only two countries where polygamy is outlawed. Um, and in Turkey it was also imposed by uh, Ataturks or by like, uh, 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 and, uh, people would rather say today in a dictatorial way. Okay? So Habib Bourguiba did the same. He imposed that code of the personal status. It outlawed polygamy. It limited marriage age uh, to um, 17 at that time to girls or to women. Today it's 18. It uh, imposed civil marriage and civil divorce. Uh, later on in the 60s, women would get more rights like this free abortion. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that people still debate the issue, question, question of abortion in some countries today. In Tunisia we settled that in the 60s, it's done and um, we don't go back to that. Uh, the, um, the equal pay that probably some women in France and in Germany in public uh, spheres still don't have this equal pay. In Tunisia I don't, I'm a guest in this country, please Sylvia. So <laughs> I'm a guest in the United States. <laughs> Come on. So, um, so uh, um, uh, uh, women have enjoyed that equal pay, I mean, since the 60s, etc. So what's, what's the point? The point is that today, in 2013, 60% of university students are girls. Today, in, the, in this revolutionary process, women are the front. Today we have a society which is not handicapped. That is, we don't have only half of society moving, we have all of society moving. And it's really surprising, but when you see images, and you already see images, this is, this is 1957. This is how Tunisian women looked like in 1957, and this is Habib Bourguiba. These are girls in the Tunisian Revolution. These pictures were taken on, the 14th, on January 14th, the day Ben Ali left, and he left because of these people were a threat to him. Okay, so uh, this is a pretty recent picture. This is what we call Revolution 2 in Tunisia because we still, Tunisia, in Tunisia, revolution is like a permanent process and we spend the whole summer uh, like protesting, etc. So this is a very new picture. I wanted to add it because um, uh, see people really, as I said, use the past tense talking about the revolution, but we are still in the streets. I mean, uh, my colleagues back home and my students and whatever, they're, all, they're still in the streets protesting and um, uh, we call it back home revolution too. And I'm coming back to that, okay? Um, there's a figure I have somewhere which is surprising to some of you. Women uh, make up 24% of the Constitutional Assembly today. This is more than the percentage of women in many uh, 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 democracies. 
Okay. Again, I'm not mentioning the U.S. silver, but um, <laughs> even though it is more than women uh, than in, in, in the American uh, Congress, but it's the, the same for uh, France, for example, for Britain. So 24%, um, that's the percentage of women in the, in the Constitutional Assembly. But the point is that women in Tunisia are emancipated, they fight for their freedoms, they fight for their rights, and they are really at the front, and that's really exceptional in the Arab uh, and Muslim world. There's absolutely no doubt about that. The third element has got to do with middle class. Uh, in spite of the corruption of the previous regime, in spite of the uh, uh, authoritarian manners, etc., it had economic successes. Uh, of course, in Tunisia, people, most people wouldn't say that today. Because, you know, in Tunisia, we're going through a revolutionary process. So uh, um, we are destroying everything the previous regime uh, did. Okay? During, this is, I mean, the, uh, historians would know this. You know? Uh, this is a revisionist spirit. So we destroy everything that used to be perfect like a few years ago. Uh, um, and um, uh, probably a few years from now, people would be more like, uh, balanced and come back to evaluate the dictatorial uh, period and would really highlight the, eco the economic successes. Uh, one of the economic successes is that it managed to construct to build a solid middle class. Um, the, the, the figures would differ, but we assume that about 70% of Tunisians are middle class. How is that? Uh, of course, this is an exception in the developing world. Of course, this is an exception in the Arab and Muslim world. But how is that important to our topic today? When you're middle class, your priorities are no longer bringing food to the table. When you're middle class, your priorities are, are uh, individual, are personal property, your priorities are freedom, are democracy, whatever. So it's a question of priorities. In some countries, people are rather very submissive because people are busy bringing food to the table. Okay? That's not the case. Um, for Tunisia, and that's really uh, uh, part of that uh, exceptionalism. Another impact has got to do, or another element has got to do with the homogeneity of Tunisian society. Uh, all of you are familiar with ethnic religious uh, clashes in the Muslim and Arab world. Uh, well, in Tunisia, I would say that we're blessed that we have a, a very homogeneous society in terms of culture and religion. 99% uh, of Tunisians are Sunni, Muslims, and Arabs. Uh, so we don't have these divisions between, you know, like in some countries, between Shia and Sunni, between Babers and Arabs. Between, so we don't have this kind. There, there are some countries with, uh, and you see that in Iraq, for example, or in Lebanon, or in uh, plenty of other countries. Uh, I mean, uh, ethnicity or religion can be a source of conflict. So Tunisia is very harmonious. We have our conflicts, uh, which are cultural, but we are discovering them now. And we have like social disparities, but in terms of uh, cultural and, um, sorry, in terms of religious and ethnic uh, uh, harmony, Tunisia is an exception in the whole um, Arab world. The final element that I've never seen an, uh, anywhere, uh, which has got to do with the impact of tourism. I'm, 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 I'm always surprised that people talk about tourism in Tunisia as a source of foreign income. That's, that's the only uh, context in which people talk about tourism. I, am, I live in a city which has received tourists since the early 60s. And uh, I, I, I worked in tourism. I've been working in tourism since I'm 15 or 16. And um, tourism has had a very serious cultural impact on the way Tunisians think. On the way to, because we socialize with tourists. Because we go out with tourists, because tourists come into our houses, because we get to tourist houses. And you know, uh, most tourists in Tunisia are Western. Most tourists in Tunisia are European. So this daily interaction between Tunisians 
an Arab population, and then the Germans and the British and the, and the British and the French, whatever. So this interaction, this socializing on a daily basis has had a very serious impact, not only on superficial things like the way we dress or the way we, uh, I don't know, or the way we speak, whatever, but also it has brought this tolerance element. Tunisians are no longer shocked by differences because differences have been living with us since the 60s and that's really very important. I mean, uh, one of the uh, uh, elements which justify this exceptionalism is tourism. Um, sometimes, you know, in, in this part of the world people study the Arab word in general like that or the Islamic word and uh, people rarely look into the uh, differences within the Arab world but these differences are huge and take the example of Tunisia compared to its neighbors, Libya and Algeria, we have absolutely nothing in common. One, and, and the reasons are those I mentioned now, and tourism is one of them. Okay? So this is uh, my first part about uh, exceptionalism in Tunisia. Now let's come to the revolution, and let's start with its context, the political, economic, and social context in December 2010. Um, so um, how did... How was the context like? You know, the, the, the revolution was sudden. It surprised everybody. How did, if we had to fly back in time now, how did Tunisia look like in, two th in December 2010? Politically, we had, uh, there's no question about that, a dictatorial regime. Uh, we had the theocracy with all what that means. That is, uh, uh, um, I mean, um, the... It's hard for me to go back to that, but uh, I don't want to go back to that. But uh, uh, politically, we had a one-party system. We had, you know, the big brother watching, you think, like the picture everywhere. Uh, uh, we had, most Tunisians were depoliticized. Most Tunisians were, uh, lost their illusions. Most Tunisians didn't care, didn't talk about politics. It was hard to talk to students at that time about democracy, whatever, because they knew that it was a joke in Tunisia. Of course, there, was, there is a minority concerned. Uh, uh, there, is, there, are a number, there were a number of political uh, opponents in the country. There was uh, a strong civil society. society has always, civil society has always been powerful and strong in Tunisia. Uh, in the campuses, we were always politicized. I come from a college of um, human sciences, and uh, we, it's very politicized. People have always been talking about politics. Students, to be fair, even during dicta dictatorship times, always had the freedom to criticize the regime, the government, whatever, but they were considered as marginal intellectuals. Nobody hears them anyway, so let, they are in the campus, they cry, they protest, let them do it as long as they don't come out. So in the city, most people were disillusioned. They were, uh, we, we could not even speak openly about politics in cafes, whatever. I mean, you could not express your perspectives. You would do it like in private, but in public forums, you could not openly criticize anything in the regime. The press was censored. I mean, uh, I don't need to highlight that Tunisia was, of course, a totally, um, I mean, it was a, 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 a theocracy, there's no, a theocracy, sorry, there's no uh, doubt about that. Uh, economically, as I said, we have, I'm repeating myself, we have a solid middle class, but we also have a kind of uh, disparities between a very wealthy minority and the rest. Um, widespread corruption, there's no doubt about that. So, uh, but the key word is that Tunisians had no concern. Um, Tunisians are, are known for being the bon vivant, that is people who want, want to enjoy life, go out, have a drink in here, spend time in cafes, whatever. But talking about politics, that's something that most Tunisians never uh, cared about. And I haven't lived here for when I was a PhD student a long time ago, having lived in, in another democracy, France. I, I, you notice that, you notice that you live in a dictatorial regime because people 
nobody talks politics. Everybody talks football. I mean, our football. Uh, everybody talks soccer. Uh, really, uh, not. Um, um, and that uh, and that was really uh, very intellectually. It was very boring. Intellectually, living in Tunisia during the dicta dictatorship years, it was really very very boring. Now, Mohamed Bazizi. Some of you know the name. This is the guy. This is what he did. This is the hero. People. Um, and uh, the American uh, Congress made a standing, uh, how do you call it, standing ovation for Mohammed Bazizi. They glorified him. Well, that's fine. His, uh, some articles glorify the guy, the gentleman. Some, there, are, there is in Paris like Mohammed Bazizi Street. Uh, there is somewhere in the United States, I don't know where, a Mohammed Bazizi statue, whatever. I, I read it, I don't know where. That's great. But this is more like uh, the myth. Or this is more like the legend. The guy wasn't specially educated, wasn't specially politicized. The guy, we now know that he happened to be drunk when he did this, okay? But of course, so we have to, you know, we have to keep the myth. It's not, it's not like, it's like talking about the American founding fathers. Very few, very few people would insist that some of them were slave owners, for example. Very few, we don't insist on that. The same for this guy, but anyway, he was like the spark. He was like the flame, that's when things started. But during the early days and months and weeks of the revolution, people were glorifying him, Mohammed Bazizi, the hero. He, he, he really, he's the cause uh, for that. Um, he led to the downfall of the dictator, etc. But as I said, uh, uh, this gentleman accidentally caused the revolution, if you want. Okay? He was desperate, he was poor, he had a couple of drinks, then he decided simply to commit that suicide, etc. But as I said, I, I wanted simply to mention that because I, I, I read still even in articles here, Mohammed Bazizi, uh, he's like uh, glorified, but he, he, was, he accidentally started the Tunisian revolution. But that's it, revolutions need myths, need symbols, and Mohammed Bazizi, this gentleman, happened to be the symbol, and that's why he is a symbol, that's what he did, okay? But uh, now let's move on to, where is my stuff? It's here. To the real causes of the revolution now. Of course, there are social causes for this revolution. You should know that Tunisia is a country of paradoxes, regional disparities. There are two Tunisias, and those who lived in Tunisia or visited Tunisia would know this. There, are, there is one Tunisia by the coastline, which is rather quite prosperous, and there is one Tunisia in the hinterland, which is very desperate. So, Probably the most important re reason or cause behind the events going on in Tunisia is that. Because the Tunisian revolution started in the hinterland. The Tunisian revolution never started in the big cities. So uh, regional disparities, that's really... Uh, I, I describe Tunisia sometimes as a schizophrenic country. There are two Tunisias. There is one way of life in the coastline and there is another way of life in the hinterland. There is, uh, and this is not new, this started, I mean, centuries ago, you know, when by the coastline you have ports, you have, you interact with the rest of the world, you have uh, investment, you have uh, infrastructure. In the hinterland you have, it's a basically a farming culture. Young people are, in, are not interested by that. You don't have, uh, uh, I mean, investment in there. So uh, this regional disparities, that's really, uh, uh, one of the social features characterized in Tunisia and nothing changed until now, okay? So, social marginalization, of course. The people living in the hinterland, they were socially marginalized. They had the hatred of, uh, of the regimes because they put the blame on politicians. You spend money in the, in the cities. You invest in the cities. You, the best schools are in the cities. The best hospitals are in the cities. The work and opportunity, tourists are in the cities. We would like to see some tourists. We would like, but tourists wouldn't go to these places. I mean, uh, we would like to see some investment, but there are even no highways taken 
taking people there. So we do have a structural problem in Tunisia and this social marginalization is really uh, one deep social feature behind this uh, revolution. Um, then a higher unemployment rate, of course. That, that's the problem number one in Tunisia economically. We have a very high unemployment rate. Uh, in, in 2010, the unemployment rate was officially 14%. These were the, the regime's figures, but the real figure was about 25%. That's a lot. That's a lot. 25%, that's, that's huge. I think in the U.S. now it's about 6%, or am I wrong? It's a little bit more. Is it 6, 7, 8, 8? Oh, and that's a lot. 25% in Tunisia in 2010. So that's the unemployment rate. Uh, and the problem is that uh, we have many um, educated, I mean, people who are, uh, I mean, jobless. That's, that's, that's very serious. You go to college. You devote years, uh, uh, I mean, uh, of your life uh, hoping for the best, and then um, you come out, you graduate, you come out, and you wait, and you sit for an interview, and you wait, and people, whatever, and jobs never come. And you know, when you have no job, you have no dignity, you have no, at least in that part of, of the world. So, um, unemployment, that's really a serious issue behind the revolution. Um, social disparities, that's another feature. I mean, some people are got crazily rich in Tunisia. This is one of the negative features of globalization. Uh, probably sometime I'll be talking about the impact of globalization in Tunisia, and it's a very positive impact. I'm not the, I don't belong to the intellectuals who are anti-globalization. I don't, I don't believe into that, okay? But I believe that also uh, some people got uh, very rich uh, during this transition from state-owned um, business into um, privatization. Some people got very rich, and they happen to be the presidents, the former presidents, like uh, uh, um, in-laws, uh, nephews, nieces, mistresses, whatever. So it was uh, like a corrupt minority holding everything. And we were, I mean, we, we, they, 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 they sh were showing off their wealth. And you see people, I mean, driving crazy cars or owning crazy things. So while others were desperate, uh, and um, especially in the hinterland, so social disparities, that's a very serious uh, problem. Then political causes are clear. Uh, we had, I, I mentioned that, we have a corrupt regime, uh, lack of freedoms, big brother watching you as I put here, um, uh, with everything that stands. People could not speak freely, the media were censored or self-censured, etc. What were the objectives and ideals of this revolution? Why is this important now? Because we are evaluating the performance of the regimes now. And uh, one way to evaluate is to check out whether the g current government has met the objectives of the Tunisian Revolution or not. So the Tunisian Revolution had social, economic and political objectives. The Tunisian Revolution had no culture objectives, had no uh, religious objectives. I need to insist on that. I attended a conference yesterday talking about the Iranian Revolution and um, uh, these are two different sets of revolutions. The Tunisian one had social, socio-economic objectives and political objectives. What are the social objectives? Of course, social equality. We need more justice. We need, um, uh, uh, of course, a better distribution of wealth. Uh, we need, um, uh, 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 of course, um, uh, we need to do something about corruption. The system is not working somewhere. Something is stuck somewhere. Uh, so we need to do something about this um, uh, uh, given an equal opportunity to different regions and the country. We need to do something to reduce uh, regional disparities. We need jobs. We need uh, dignity. I mean, th it's, not, it's not too much asking. I mean, the Tunisian revolution had clear objectives, socio-economic objectives, which are these. 
social equality, equal opportunities, reduction of regional disparities, employment opportunities, dignity. Uh, I, I, I don't think that you have, uh, you, you would see any, any uh, uh, cultural or any religious, um, um, I mean, uh, requests in there. Then political objectives, of course, dismantling autocracy, freedom, democracy, modernity. So um, I, as Sylvia said, happened to participate in that revolution. I was one of the people marching against uh, uh, Ben Ali, that's the name of the ex-president. Uh, I, I, I still, you know, when you participate in these events, you don't, um, these are th things that live with you forever. And now we still talk about that because uh, the people who were marching against the previous regime, we still meet since we are still, we are still in the streets. We haven't th seen anything change. So we are the same faces, still marching and protesting and uh, we are taking part in what we call revolution too. Uh, I, I remember the slogans very well. The slogans were, uh, um, I mean, uh, um, very modernist if you want. The slogans were universal. The slogans had to do with anti-corruption, uh, more freedoms and to censorship, more um, justice, more egalitarianism. So, um, I mean, these are the slogans that any group of uh, American protesters would have in the streets. They're not uh, surprising slogans, but it's important to mention that because, as I said, today the debate in Tunisia has turned or has taken um, a different um, uh, orientation. Um, what, how did this, what were the means used? This was really a unique revolution. When you think of revolutions, oh my God, what did I do? Um, why am I calling this a unique revolution? You know, I personally grew up reading about some revolutions. Uh, I don't know, I read about many Vietnamese, Chinese, Iranian, uh, 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 Marxist things in Cuba, etc. Well, this Tunisian revolution is unique. Uh, I, I'm calling it personally. You can, I'm biased if you want. But I'm calling it the first modern revolution of the 21st century. The first real modern revolution. Why that? We had, it's, this was, or this is, a leaderless revolution. No leaders. That is, it was a spontaneously popular revolution. This, this is a party-less revolution. There is no political party behind it. An ideology-less revolution. There's no ideology. No communism, no socialism, no capitalism, no Islamism, no whatever. So um, that's why I'm calling it, uh, I'm referring to it as a, a unique revolution. Simply because uh, it was um, a different kind of revolution. It was rather based on popular um, uh, requests and it was rather, or it is rather quite uh, spontaneous. So what were the, um, the means used? Uh, you probably or you surely read about uh, the, the uh, uh, revolutions in the United States in the 60s. I taught a course about the 60s, probably the best course I enjoy teaching. And um, uh, you are familiar with the uh, uh, Martin Luther King style of militancy. It was based on sit-ins, marches, protests, civil disobedience, etc. That's what you had in Tunisia. The Tunisian revolution is 99% peaceful. That is, it's based on marches. That's what we are, enjoy doing. Actually, now we meet, I, meet, I meet everybody only in marches. So it's like, I don't see them anywhere. Well, really, especially this summer, because we had like daily meetings. I see you then. Then would mean we meet downtown Seuss at 9 o'clock. That's when I see everybody. So I personally go there. I'm sure that I'm meeting all my colleagues or friends, whatever, because this is uh, how the, the Tunisian revolution has been working. Peaceful marches and protests, but very emotionally conducted ones, not uh, futile. Uh, slogans, modern slogans, sit-ins in universities, etc. strikes, 
um, I mean that's what the um, I mean that's what makes it rather quite um, peaceful as I said why is it a modern revolution uh, this revolution was largely successful thanks to social networks remember that we had a dictatorial regime remember that the media uh, was uh, uh, where or was either censored or self-censored so how did we know about the events going on because remember the chronologically the revolution started in the hinterland Mohammed Baziz is from Sidi Bouzid, that's in the south, or center south. Uh, I mean, um, how did we in the big cities, and two-thirds of Tunisians live in the cities by the coastline. The media were still glorifying the regime, talking about the successes of the regime. So how did we know about that? What mobilized our Tunisians were, uh, were um, uh, bloggers. Was, uh, were, uh, I call it the Facebook revolution, if you want. I never had a Facebook account personally before. I had one during these events because that's, that was the only source of information. So young bloggers, and they look like any one of you here. So they went to these places. They were filming the events. They were filming the reaction of the government because the government was, had a very stupid way. Uh, I mean, um, dealt with these events in a very stupid way. The government uh, used extreme radical violence against people who were peacefully marching. When people march, what should you do? I'm not here to give advices to dictators. Let them march. They want to talk. Let them talk. They are 10,000, 100,000. They're marching. What? But when you start using violence and when you, and you use the extreme form of violence, when you assassinate people, nobody is going to forgive that. And that's what, exactly what happened. We had images. We had photos. Thanks to Facebook. Thanks to, um, this, as I said, the social networks. And uh, of course, during these days, which were very hot like days, hot in the sense like very exciting days, uh, um, the bloggers were coordinating and they were doing a great job. They were purchased by the police, but they were doing a, an excellent job. Um, of, uh, of course, also the, um, the slogans used. I don't know whether I've, I've shown you pictures or not yet, but there are the slogans used. I don't know whether you can. Look at the slogans young people were using in Tunisia. Game is over. Globalization, yeah? That's why I say globalization is great. Power to the people. I mean, this is Tunisia. This is not Washington DC, whatever, okay? Yes, we can. Anyway, of course, um, uh, um, I didn't make any selective choice of pictures, okay? Uh, um, this, are, this is the uh, uh, Ben Ali's picture. Big brother watching you. Freedom. This is the famous slogan of the revolution. Do you know what degage would mean? No, it's rather like that. The guys would rather mean get away. If you're a dictator, if you're a big brother watching us, and you have people uh, starting in the hinterland and then joining in the city, that, that's what made a difference. Because we, it's not the first time we had protests in the poor areas. Uh, in the poor areas, the people protesting had social and, and economic motivation. In the big cities, we're not desperate. So, and we are the larger number, two-thirds of Tunisians live in there. The people marching in the cities are middle-class and upper-middle-class people. Usually when we think of revolutions, we think of desperate people protesting. No, so we, I mean, we, we're not desperate, but we were marching, and that's what also made the difference because the requests were different. The requests were, as I said, modern and modernist, and, uh, and, and uh, they had to do with democracy, etc. And the slogans are surprising. I remember when I was marching against Ben Ali, I was observing people, they, all, they were all young. I mean, they were all like familiar faces. Uh, most people, uh, we should not idealize revolutions. Ide uh, revolutions, I believe, are elitist by definition. That is, you always have a minority concerned by it, conducting it. Uh, of course, um, 
usually the minority conducting the revolution never profits from it, usually. And that's the case in Tunisia now. But I still remember, I told you, I have images. When we were marching against Ben Ali, I was looking into the faces. These were either former students I had, or current students, teachers, lawyers, uh, I mean, very educated people and very young people with a large percentage of women. That's really remarkable. At the time when most people were observing us, they were sitting in cafes smoking their, their um, hookah with H, and they were uh, um, surprised. What are these people? They, were, they didn't believe that it would work. Nobody believed that the peaceful protests would really help us get, out of, uh, get rid of a regime. But um, uh, it worked. It worked because there was a, a national union for the first time. Everybody all over the country was uh, standing against dictatorship, against uh, corruption. Uh, and also what made the difference was that the army uh, uh, decided to join people's side, which really uh, uh, weakened the position of the uh, previous regime. Okay? Anyway, so Degage would mean go away. Ben Ali finally decided, these are more pictures. Th this is January 14th again. This is. Uh, 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 the day the dictator fled, uh, this is a teacher, I don't know what he teaches, but it's a famous picture, like, you see, like, you see, I mean, the, 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 the defiance, I don't know whether my, my word in English is, in, in his face. Um, these are the people uh, protesting Ben Ali, and this is a symbol, the Tunisian flag, Tunisia is like uh, in a cage. And then look at the police. I mean, why do you do that to people? I mean, why? I mean, if people are marching, it's really stupid. I, I believe that that regime was really totally stupid. I mean, look at these people. Are these scary people? I mean, what would they do? They march, they protest, Ben Ali de Gas. So, you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I. I, I I personally decided to join, to participate. That's not usually my type. I don't usually, I'm not, uh, I'm more like an intellectual. I don't physically participate. I decided to do that because when I saw images of regime shooting people, I told people around me the guy w wouldn't make it, uh, I mean, he wouldn't last more than a month. Because when you shoot people, this means that you're fragile, that you are, that you are no longer solid. This means that you are no longer confident. And that's what happened. Anyway, on, on January 14th, 2011, uh, uh, less than a month after uh, the, um, the suicide of, uh, of Bazizi, Ben Ali left the country. And that's the success of phase one of the Tunisian revolution. The dictator leaves, leaves the country. Then we move to the, phase, the first phase, the first transition period, January 14th, that's when Ben Ali left, to October 23rd, that's when we had our first elections. This was a very special time. Um, this was an exciting time, but a scary time. That's why I'm calling it chaos and hopes. Um, all of a sudden, we had, you know, you know what the dictatorship is. The government is occupying all spaces. That is, the government is everywhere. And this is a police state we're talking about. That is, in every roundabout in Tunisia, you see 44 policemen. Like from between, um, you, when you drive from your house to your work and place, you meet like 1,200 policemen on the road. This is not an exaggeration. So, and all of a sudden, that regime collapsed, and uh, the streets were empty. We had no police left anymore. Uh, and everybody went back home. I mean, imagine this. Imagine this happening to you here in the U.S. All of a sudden, for whatever reason, you no longer have any government. Obama goes somewhere. You, you don't have any, any police anymore. I mean, that's a scary situation. I mean, 
uh, I mean, we were used to, uh, uh, to, to, to police everywhere, to government presence everywhere. So that was scary. I mean, you would sleep with like, I was sleeping with my clothes on. And, uh, uh, you know, when you have a family and you, you know that this is a totally unstable situation, that's, I mean, that's a really scary situation. So this, the political scene between, during that period was very exciting, that's true. Because we got rid of a dictator, that's great. That wasn't expected so fast. <coughs> we discovered new freedoms. People, internet was no longer censored. Can you believe that YouTube was censored in Tunisia before uh, uh, January 14th? Even YouTube was censored. So all of a sudden, you know, imagine that you had a government occupying everything, then that, that power went away. It's like a, a teenager whose parents are suffocating him, then they go on vacation, all of a sudden. And you have all these freedoms. That was, that's what we had. We were even disoriented. You have all these, uh, I mean, new media organs coming in, debates going on all the time. Everybody was marching for whatever reason. So it was a very exceptional uh, period. Uh, uh, politically, during this um, uh, transition period, we had three very weak interim governments. Uh, we had no clear visibility. We had an outbreak of violence, political violence mainly everywhere. Uh, uh, and especially, as I said, we had an issue of security. We had no police all of a sudden. The police was guilty. The police was the target of people's protests. So they simply decided, out of shame probably, to go back home. And uh, we were guard in our own houses. We had uh, what we called at the time neighborhood security things, like uh, every night, because we had a curfew during three or four months. So every night you'll have like the neighbors meeting. Basically, I, what I remember is that we were talking, having tea and coffee, but we were officially the heroes, like guarding our neighborhoods, like you have people bringing us some tea, some sweet stuff. Occasionally, you would say, oh, there's something going on, let's run. But at least where I live, myself and Sus, we didn't have big issues. But, um, but it was a scary time. It was a scary time. Uh, with, in spite of all the hope that it brought, and in spite of a feeling of uh, success we had, and in spite of the glory we had, so this is more like the negative thing. The positive thing is that the public administrations never stopped working. So the regime like collapsed. Ben Ali fled, his in-laws were arrested, some of his ministers were put in jail, some of his other ministers were in, still in government, so it's a weird situation. Uh, uh, who decided that this should go in jail and this should rather govern, I don't know anymore. But uh, the point is that the, we still had the public administration going on. Nothing stopped in the country, nothing. We had, um, uh, as I said, uh, um, a new kind of non-stop uh, political uh, form of political uh, debates, that is debates going on. And Tunisians were getting their lesson one in democracy, if you want. We were discovering new faces, people were either in jail or abroad coming back. We had um, uh, new political faces coming in, new parties. We had uh, even, you know, this story of political parties is weird. I think today in Tunisia, now, in uh, November, in October 2013, we have something like 140-something party. Uh, uh, three years ago, we had one party and like three meetings, okay, uh, or three groups. Now we have 140-something party. Uh, I, I come from, as I said, a college of uh, human sciences. There are people I know that is not necessarily friend with, but I teach with. They, they are part, they created like three different parties in the same school, really. So, uh, and, and that, was, that was part of it. That was part of this new freedom, you know. All of a sudden, you're free. You can do, you want to do a party, do your party. You want a rally, organize a rally. You want a new TV, get your, your new thing. So during this period also we did great things because the, the uh, uh, human rights organizations put pressure to free the prisons of political opponents, to, um, 
to uh, uh, stop any form of government's control over mosques, over which has happened to be a mistake, over to stop any form of censorship, etc. So it was really an exciting time, and of course we were an international attraction, an, an international destination. Everybody was visiting us. Hillary Clinton was there. The British Prime Minister was there, you were there, she was there. I mean, I mean, everybody was, we were like, and people, and you watch TV, you see CNN talking about Tunisia, and CNN didn't even know Tunisia, where Tunisia was before that. And uh, it, was, it was a period that, in spite of all the emotion we had, that we can um, go back to and um, really be, be um, uh, um, I mean, um, uh, be um, proud of, sorry. Uh, of course, the social scene, Strikes, non-stop strikes, that's what you had. That is, every, people had problems, they had no freedom to express themselves. All of a sudden, anybody having any problem anywhere would be protesting. That is, kids at school would have, it was the opportunity. Employees in a factory, whatever, would be striking. A guy who couldn't divorce his wife would be striking. Whatever, anybody, who had, <laughs> really, I mean, it, it was like a non-stop outbreak of protests. Um, uh, and th that's what you do when you have, you know, you didn't drink like you were in the desert for years, you had no water, and all of a sudden, they give you so much water to drink. What would you do? No, I'm thirsty, but let me be rational, let me be moderate. A bit, one bit, one bit after the other. No, you jump into it, okay? That's what happened in Tunisia. And uh, as I said, that's why that time is really, the, the first transition period was really an exceptional one. How did it come, and, uh, come to an end? The October 23rd elections, Tunisia's first democratic elections. To me personally, there were two days which uh, uh, I, I, I still don't, that I still, um, which still visit me in my dreams, if you want. Uh, January the 14th, when we were marching against Ben Ali, I still remember that day because um, there were, uh, I, some people were talking about snipers which might shoot us. And I, I, I felt very, uh, I still feel the emotion because there were many mothers in there. And I was, some of them were friends, some of them you know because they were teachers, and I, I was pushing them to go back home, uh, you, you, because it was risky. What if any one of us gets shot, your mothers? And I, I, I still remember that, that most of them were telling me that they were there, ready to pay the price for their children, because they were mothers, they were Martian. I don't know why, but this, I still live with that. I still, live, I still remember that. I still sometimes even have tears in my eyes when I see these people, because they were Martian for the future of their kids, uh, I mean, that's really, that's really great. The second day I still really uh, uh, remember with much, uh, with a lot of emotion is the first elections day. I, was, I happened to be part of the National um, Committee organizing elections. We had the training, we had people from the United Nations coming in. They gave us training during three sessions. Then, um, uh, um, I mean, I, I was in an office in a place called El Kantawi, like, like a neighborhood in Sousse. And we were there like six o'clock in the morning and we opened the doors at 7 o'clock. This day is a remarkable day. People were voting for the first time freely in their life. That is, I had people who were like 75 years old uh, voting and crying. That is, uh, really, uh, you're Americans, you vote, you've always voted, I mean, for ages. But in Tunisia, we always had elections like 99% uh, turnout, and 99% uh, of these 99% of the people who voted would vote for Ben Ali. So you see how exciting our elections were. So I personally know, know nobody who voted at that time. I know nobody who knows anybody who knows anybody who voted. But still we had 99%. But this day we had free, 
Uh, and by all means, because I participated in that, I was a witness, we had really totally free and fair elections. We had, we, the results were proclaimed in the office. That is, before we went out, we, we, we made the results public. So it was really exceptional. But what I remember is that the emotions, people were voting because things were slow. People would queue up during three hours. Tunisians are Mediterraneans. People don't queue up during three hours in Tunisia. <laughs> That's not something people do. But they were queuing up during the whole day. I happened to be in an office where the f few, uh, next president of Tunisia voted and many other people. But what, what I noticed was the, uh, the pride, the emotion, uh, and, um, and uh, the optimism that people had at the time. Really, people coming in, they were like expressing a kind of signs of joy because they, because they felt Tunisian, they felt citizens for the first time. Okay? And as I said, especially senior people, people in, in their 60s and 70s and 80s who came in to vote, I had a guy who told me, I feel Tunisian for the first time. I never felt Tunisian before. So that's, that's, that's great because uh, this is, um, uh, I mean, one of the objectives of the Tunisian revolution which, ha which happened to be met during that um, uh, uh, famous October 23 day. You see these pictures, people queuing up, people obviously uh, happy about that. And, and uh, in spite of the, as I said, it was physically tiring, it was very slow. I personally was there at 6 o'clock in the morning and we finished counting everything at 2 o'clock. That is two o'clock. I don't know how many hours there were, but uh, and we were all like we didn't even eat. We didn't even. We were like very careful counting, recounting. You know, uh, it was a very serious business. But uh, we felt like we were part. We were all volunteers, of course. I mean, uh, uh, nobody paid us for that. But we were part. We felt part of history. Of course, we felt. I personally was very happy until I saw the results the following day. Okay, because uh, you know, because I come from a city where, which is quite. I don't know. Can you say that Swiss is wealthy? Is it wealthy or is it comfortable? Privilege, Privilege yes. So uh, El Kantawi, which is even... So um, uh, um, uh, we, when we were counting the results, the party which happened to be, which had 40% of votes at the national level, had only 7 out of 600 votes. That is, we had 600 people, had only 7. There. So it tells you that where, where I come from. But anyway, when I, when I went back home, I slept because I was tired and I was very happy. The Islamist party had seven votes and the progressive parties were winning. That's great. Okay? I slept the following day, turned on TV and uh, was contacting some people. Everybody was depressed. What happened? What's going on? Why are you depressed? Well, the results of, the Tunisia, of Tunisia's first free elections gave us an Islamist party in, in, the, in the lead with 40% of votes. Some of you tell me how come that after everything you told us about exceptionalism and modernity, whatever, how come that an Islamist party would gain 40% of votes? Um, well, this is, um, I would say that they were lucky. Really, as simple as that. Why? Because uh, on October 23rd, we had 140 party. That is, people would come in, they would have the choice between that famous party they always knew about, that old party they always heard somewhere, that party which has got the reputation of being the victim of the dictator's uh, repression, and all the other parties which are probably progressive, modern, whatever, but they are fragmented. Okay. We told people during the campaign, come together, come together, otherwise you have no chance. Anyway, so um, this fragmentation of progressive parties uh, helped really 
uh, I mean, would explain this kind of 40% victory the Islamists had. Also, during the campaign, to be honest, they had an excellent campaign. These people have money. Islamists have money. Uh, I mean, there is like an Islamist Brotherhood organization that um, you already study about. And these people have money. Qatar has got money. Saudi Arabia has got money. And uh, these people were, they had an excellent campaign. I mean, they went to poor neighborhoods, overpopulated neighborhoods. They were organizing group marriages for some people, group circumcisions for some kids. They were um, distributing money like that. They were, and they had, also they had an excellent campaign vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, the West. That is, they were coming to the US, to Washington DC, lobbying, selling that, um, uh, I'm not saying that it is wrong yet. I mean, I'm not saying that yet, but uh, they, come, they came to America and they sold the image of a new democratic uh, Islamist party. Uh, uh, and they had also a lot of backup from the West as well. Okay. Anyway, the bottom line is that on, on October 23rd, we had 40% of Tunisians uh, um, uh, elect or vote for this Islamist party. 40% uh, that's not a majority, you need 50 plus 1% to have the majority in the Constitutional Assembly. That's why they formed a coalition uh, with two secular parties and uh, uh, that's how phase two started. The second transition period, October 2011 um, until now, the Islamist-led coalition in power. Well, uh, these are the this is the period going on until now. I just remind you of what we voted for in October 20, on October 23. We voted for a constitutional assembly, uh, 217 uh, representatives, for one specific task. They had the task of writing a new constitution in a year. Of course, they had also the responsibility of choosing a government, whether with, from, I mean, within or from outside. But they, had, they were there mainly to write a constitution uh, during a period of a year, a year later, we would have a new constitution and we would organize elections, presidential, congressional, and then we'll move on from the temporary to the stable system with the government going on for five years or four, whatever, okay, the constitution says. That's what we voted for. Um, then we had this Islamist in power. Um, there are three ways you can evaluate this Islamist. Uh, and Marwan, this is good for your course now, since you're, this gentleman is teaching a course about the Arab Spring, and as I told him when I visited his class, it's like teaching the American Revolution in 1775, because you don't know what's going on, you don't know what it would lead to, and that's really uh, brave. The guy, I think, he spends the whole night following the news more than I do. But there are three ways you use to evaluate this government. Then you have my group of people, the people I belong to, the intellectuals, if you want to call us liberals, the secular, the people who led the revolution, if you want. For these people, uh, the results were a shock. For these people, uh, uh, there is a fear of uh, Islamism. There is an Islamophobia, if you want. There is a fear of an Islamist uh, theocracy. Uh, theocracy, pardon. For these people, Islamism and democracy are incompatible. For these people, which is an important section of Tunisian society, uh, uh, Islamism or the Islamists in power, that's a threat to the Tunisian revolution. And when uh, these people evaluate the performance of this government, they say that it's more corrupt than the dictator. And they say that the system is even worse today. And they say that nothing changed. So, uh, and these people rejected the Islamists since day one because never believed that Islamists were really fit to govern Tunisia. That's one way to look into things. 
The other way, the opposite way, that is the people in power and their supporters, for them things are not going well in Tunisia because of the opposition, because of the westernized people, because of the secular, because of the civil society, because of the media. This is the conspiracy theory. We are in power, we govern, but we are not going anywhere because the opposition parties are really, uh, um, I mean, um, uh, um, uh, represent an obstacle, because the civil society is an obstacle, because the media are an obstacle. A more moderate, moderate way of seeing, looking into things, would say that these people had no experience to govern, that these people were either in jail for a long time uh, or in exile. So these people were strangers to Tunisia, if you want. These people had also no experience in governing, so that's not easy at all. Uh, these people also governing during this period is also very difficult for anybody, whether Islamists or not. I mean, this is a revolutionary time. So um, um, the task is huge and delicate, etc. So that's more like a third way to look into things. I, as an academic, would look into things in a different way. I would say, uh, what did they promise to do? What have they done? That's how I evaluate, because we're here into the evaluation of this transition period. What did these people promise to do? Economically or politically, they promised during the campaign, the campaign an end to corruption. So did they bring an end to corruption or not? Corruption today in Tunisia is more widespread than before. Uh, a better governing model, that is transparency. We have less transparency today than during the dictatorship time. This is not an analysis, this is uh, a description. Uh, uh, they promised a new modern constitution in a year. We haven't even done half of it. They promised elections after a year. That is, apparently, I wasn't there, but we voted the, like in October 2012. Okay, so uh, we, 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 even the electoral process has not started. So this is, again, not an analysis, this is a um, description. They promised better governors, but these people, when we look into them, they, those governing us, they not know, they, like, they look like incompetent, if you want, they look sometimes aggressive. I personally feel, I'm not a member of any political party, but we feel like we Tunisians now are governed by the least competent of us. We're not governed by the best, we're governed by the people who are in power simply because they are members of certain political parties. That's why they are in power. Because they were in jail for 10 years, that's why they are in power. Okay? So I'm, that's not really the best you would expect. Then uh, social performances. They, they promise, and I don't know why they promise that, because it's a stupid promise. They promise 600,000 jobs in a year. I don't know who can promise that, but the point is that some people believed into that. 40% of Tunisians believed into that. Of course, when I say 40% of Tunisians, you should put it in its perspective. I didn't say that earlier. Uh, half of Tunisians didn't vote. So we, we are 11 million in Tunisia today. In Tunisia, Tunisia has got 11 million. Voters, those of a voting age, are close to 8 million. And only 1,400,000 voted for the Islamist party. That's why I said they were lucky. So we had... Uh, less than 50% of a turnout. So just to put it in its, uh, this results in its perspective. They promised social justice. We haven't seen that. We have seen re uh, recurrent economic crises. We have uh, seen an increase in cost of living. Uh, they, have promised an end, uh, they have promised an end to regional disparities. I don't know why they promised that because they need like 20 years to do something about that. Uh, we haven't even seen any highway, even the, pr even the blueprint of a highway. So uh, they, you know, that's, that explains the, the disappointment that we in Tunisia have. Uh, and, and this is again not a, a, an analysis, this is a description. This is what they promise and this is what we have today. Um, um, I think that Tunisia now, during this period, has got a very serious problem with, the, with its elite. Uh, 
we have a problem with the political elite. Politicians in Tunisia were surprised by the revolution. They weren't prepared for it. They weren't prepared to govern. Uh, they were prepared for this new kind of dynamic uh, I mean, system we have. And we have a very serious prob problem with our political parties and politicians. They are like, they bring a lot of stress, they bring a lot of uh, uh, animosity to a country which is, which is already full of stress. Okay? So when we watch TV, and that's all we do now, um, uh, we believe that we have a problem with uh, the political elite, whether in power or in opposition. And of course, there is a widespread impatience and disappointment. Think of the people who started the revolution. Think of the people who are marching because they were, they're desperate, because they have no jobs, because they're marginalized, because they have no dignity. What have they gained so far? What have they, I mean, how, what, how, what, how did they, think of the people who, who had martyrs in their families, who lost um, members. Of think of the mothers or brothers who lost members, and they, they, they felt that it is something deserved, or something, sorry, worth it. I mean, freedom is worth it. The, 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 the future paradise we have is worth it. But so far, they haven't got anywhere. You might tell me this is very pessimistic. No, there are positive things now, these days. There are plenty of positive things. We have, very, we have a very dynamic environment. It's a very challenging, exciting uh, political scene. I mean, it's a permanent revolution. People talk about, uh, I mean, people conduct political debates everywhere you go. Everywhere, like in a store, in a cafe, in a classroom. I mean, uh, we, we, are, we have like a kind of enlightenment, if you want, going on in Tunisia. This is good because we moved from total, from a no man's land, if you want, into an everyday. Uh, uh, involvement with political issues, and that's really uh, very important. Uh, we have also, uh, it is very interesting because we are now discovering our cultural differences. Because dictatorship was like putting everybody in the same bag, if you want. Now we discover that we're different. We discover that uh, the modernity we had was imposed by the governments, and that some people never believed into it. Uh, um, we discover that Tunisia is a country split between, and that's a culture uh, difference, between progressives, between liberals, between modernists, and between very conservative people. Um, so uh, there are signs we, saw, uh, uh, we see now in Tunisia that, never, that are shocking to Tunisians. You know, these religious uh, dresses I see sometimes in Philadelphia, uh, they, they shocked us. Because, we know, you know, the previous regime was very obsessed with secularism. Girls could not wear the veil at school. Uh, mosques were controlled. There was no religious, uh, I mean, uh, presence in any public forum. But we moved from that into a shocking, uh, heavy religious presence. And that shocks Tunisia. For, for many Tunisians, that's the way it should be. For many others, that's alien, that's strange. So we have a cultural difference, uh, um, and which we are discovering. Uh, of course, I believe that, um, uh, here I'm coming to the challenges of democratic transition, I believe that this period is very difficult. I believe that a transition from dictatorship to democracy is, an is a huge task. It's all about occupying spaces. The, gov the previous regime was occupying all spaces, in government, in mosques, in schools, in uh, civil society, in uh, football teams, whatever. Now, all of a sudden, as we said, that government disappeared and now we're fighting for spaces. The liberals would like to occupy spaces. The conservatives would like spaces. The religious would like spaces. So, I mean, it's really very challenging. I mean, this competition to occupy spaces is really um, um, 
uh, one of the challenges. Another challenge of this uh, democratic transition has got to do with getting rid of the system itself. Dictatorship is a system. How can you get rid of that system? How can you get rid of corruption? It's not easy. Corruption is like a cancer. How can you get rid of um, all the, uh, um, the components of that corrupt regime? I mean, how can you get rid um, of... Uh, how can you purify, like a judicial system, for example? How can you distinguish? This is a corrupt judge and this is not. I mean, that's really very... How can you, how can you purify the police? How can you do that? So it's not... Theoretically, that's nice. We're going to purify Tunisia. We, we are getting rid of corruption, but it seems to be a very complicated challenge and task because corruption is everywhere, in the economic sectors, in the industry, in the police, and the judicial system, etc. And it's not easy to do. Um, you should know that democracy is also cultural. Democracy is not only technical, like voting, etc. Democracy is cultural. And one of the challenges is to get this democratic culture. How can we get a democratic culture? I mean, we don't have democracy even within our families in Tunisia. So how would you get... We don't have democracy in our classrooms. I'm not a democratic teacher. I'm very dictatorial teacher. So how... And we, are, we grew up with dictatorship. So how can we really... And as I said, this democracy, this freedom surprised us. We were not prepared for it. So this learning a democratic culture or getting to it, that's really um, um, very... Uh, uh, it's a very slow process because, as I said, the, the, the revolution surprised everybody, political parties, social, civil society, the media, citizens, etc. We're not well equipped for democracy. We are, if you want, in the learning process. We are learning what democracy is. We are moving from uh, freedom to a responsible freedom. This is very... We are moving from darkness to light, if you want. But, and this is what's happening in Tunisia now. Tunisia is not a democracy. Tunisia is in the process of becoming one. Tunisia is in a transition from dictatorship, from darkness to light, as I said. And um, that's not easy at all. That's not easy at all. That's an exceptional task. And it would, uh, I mean, take years to do that. So let me finish because I'm done with the hopes for the future. So I finish with that, then if you have any question, you're very welcome. So uh, beyond Western media, yes, achievements of the Jasmine Revolution. Um, I, I, I did a PhD about the media, the American media. I did a PhD about the media and politics in the United States. I teach about the, the media. I love that topic. I'm very disappointed with the media in the West. But I'm not surprised by what they're doing. Uh, last week, the Tunisia's president, that nobody knows, neither in Tunisia nor here, was um, <laughs> he's, 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 uh, he's president by accident. We didn't vote for him as a president. He, anyways, another story. He was invited on CNN. I was, uh, f somebody put a, f uh, a film on Facebook. I watched that. And the lady, I don't know what her name is on CNN. It's a famous name. She was uh, interviewing uh, the gentleman. She said, I don't know, this is CNN. This is a serious network. Tunisia now has uh, finished drafting its new constitution and now we have uh, moved to a new uh, uh, government. Nothing of all that has happened in Tunisia. Where, this is CNN and the guy was interviewed and he speaks fluent English. Didn't even stop her. No, we haven't done that. <laughs> no, we haven't. Uh, we still have the same government. <laughs> I mean, this is CNN. Let's be serious. When I watch especially the French networks, they are exaggerating what's going on in Tunisia. They are amplifying, they are simplifying, they are stereotyping. They are scaring people to death. I'm not surprised that news in Morocco scare people. I'm not surprised that news about Tunisian events in, um, 
in Saudi Arabia or in, they don't have news in Saudi Arabia. But, um, and, and this Gulf country is scared Tunisians. Yes, of course, democracy is scary to these people. They, want to, uh, uh, they, they don't want to promote democracy as a model. But I'm, I'm, I'm surprised when uh, uh, French or American networks stereotype like that, exaggerate. I, 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 was, I just came back from Tunisia, I mean, I, a month ago. There is a revolution going on in Tunisia now. There are protests going on. But 90% of Tunisians are enjoying a fantastic life. 90% of Tunisians, we've never had as many tourists uh, in Tunisia as we had this year. This is uh, something that surprised me. We had this year more tourists than ever. Nobody has ever attacked any tourists or any hotel. And nobody has ever gone into women uh, in the cafes, tell them, come here, you're not covered, cover yourself. So there are exaggerations going on. It's true that there is a new element in Tunisia called Islamism and terrorism. That's new. There is a new element of political assassination. That's new. But that's, the blame is to be put on the government, which, has, which is not controlling mosques, which is not controlling the jihadi groups, whatever. But this, I mean, this, that's a political problem. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the six million tourists we had this year, they had a fantastic time. The Tunisians who don't care about politics, those, those who are enjoying their life, they have, they're having a fantastic time. And there are positive things that the media don't talk about. Look at what we did in um, three years now. We got rid of a dictator. That's, 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 that's huge. We got rid of a police state. We organized democratic elections. We have now a multi-party system. We have new freedoms. The media are free like, like uh, I mean, um, um, never before. We have a very dynamic civil society. We have a high militancy. Young people are very engaged. We have, um, um, uh, uh, I mean, all these components, media and civil society and opposition parties, they're putting pressure on the, on the Islamist party. And this Islamist party has made many concessions. So if, if, if democracy would succeed in Tunisia, that's because we are putting pressure on this Islamist party, and this Islamist party has accepted plenty of concessions. The, 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 what we call, they call a secular in Tunisia. The secular are, are, are fighting everywhere. For every single word in the constitution we are fighting. Uh, in every spot we are fighting. And there is a kind of national union going on in the country. And um, this is really um, impressive. Uh, uh, these days now, these days, Nahda, that's the ruling party, accepted to resign from power and they accepted to, uh, to a government of technocrats which would supervise new elections. That's great. That's what you hoped for. So what are um, uh, the chances for the future? What are Tunisia's democratic assets first? I would say that the capacity for, to find compromises and consensus, that's very Tunisian. We are able to find consensus. We are able to, find, to impose or to find compromises even with the Islamist party. Even the Islamist party can uh, forget about the big Islamic Brotherhood agenda and rather adopt the Tunisian one. They're able to do that. We have, uh, and, then, and the next steps are clear. Once we have, we finish the, con the constitution, we have elections and we can't trick elections in Tunisia anymore. That's not possible anymore. And once we move on to a stable system, like the government going on for five years, I think we'll, we'll have much more stability. Tunisia's assets are its youth. Tunisia's assets are its educated youth. Tunisia's assets are its women. Tunisia's assets is uh, its intelligentsia. We have uh, competent people, whether living in Tunisia or abroad. Uh, I don't think that Tunisia's democratic achievements would be likely to be reversed in the future. I, have, I mean, I, I don't think this would happen. I don't think that Tunisians would give up the freedoms they obtained. Uh, 
I don't think that Tunisian... Um, uh, um, I believe that the Tunisians would come out with their own model of democracy. I believe personally, as a teacher involved with political science issues, that democracy is not like a Western idea that is universal and can be imposed all over the world. I'm surprised when some presidents talk about promoting democracy in that region or that region. Democracy is not something, I believe, but I can be wrong, that is universal, it's a universal recipe, you can apply it everywhere. I believe that Tunisians would cook their own democracy, if you want, with their own flavor. So Tunisians are designing their own democracy, and I hope successfully so. I think that Tunisian experience has already shattered a myth saying that Arabs and democracy cannot uh, meet or are incompatible. I think we are destroying that myth. Um, that's all. <laughs>